they are not idealistic about decarbonizing the world, but they are pragmatic about sustaining their business and their local colleagues and friends and, and family business. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show that seeks to uncover what tech innovations are sprouting, which ones we want to trellis, and which ones we want to weed out. On today's episode, we're back on the farm looking at what bedrock already exists to bring electrification solutions into agriculture. But before we dive in, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and CEO of the award-winning climate tech PR firm, Technica Communications, and I help to lead the organization Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. If you're enjoying the show, we ask that you follow us on social media, share our posts, and you know what I'm going to say, leave us a review. I'm going to keep saying it until we have enough reviews that I'm satisfied. (laughs) How's that for being a queen bee? Okay, you can also support us on the Patreon channel and become a paying member and support all the wonderful people that are operating behind the scenes to make this show possible. And now a short message from the Resource Labs Network. Fun fact, or not so fun fact, depending on how you're going to look at this, but one diesel tractor equates to the same carbon emissions as 45 passenger cars in California. So if you replace that tractor with a medium-sized electric one, you take 45 cars off the road, basically, in terms of emissions, at least. And, you know, if we're a global society serious about being more sustainable in the way we grow our food, you know, for our expanding population, then we get to think beyond organic and regenerative agriculture. We get to think about the fuel sources used to power all this equipment and Like you heard at the top of the show, this energy transition in agriculture is going to happen because it saves farmers money, a lot of money. So today's guest is David Myers. He is the CEO and founder of the startup Grid Tractor, and that's a company that's electrifying the farming sector by understanding in detail how energy used on the farm and energy markets overlap in beneficial ways. Our particular perspective was that the electrical services needed to transition to electric farm vehicles, including tractors and pickup trucks and crew vehicles, et cetera, was actually right there in plain sight in that um, we were operating these irrigation pumps and knew at a very detailed level uh, when they run, how much they run, what kind of flexibility they might have to be run differently. And therefore, you know, sort of the negative image of that would be what's available for charging. Right. So this is the energy that's not being used to pump irrigation water. You can see as an opportunity to charge various uh, electrical devices and vehicles to operate on the farm. Exactly. And that also, as we talk about vehicle to grid, that provides a place where you can send the power back to the grid uh, from a battery and a tractor or a pickup truck. And it happens just to be right where a lot of our solar production is happening. And that's kind of where we need those those resources. I, lo- I love it when these Venn diagrams come together and a new opportunity presents itself. 
So what are you guys working on right now? I, I heard that you had received some grants recently. Correct. So we have one grant that we've been working on for just over a year, which is to you know put all of this into place on two farms, mm-hmm. uh, four locations total. So you need control systems, you need hardware, you need software, um, you need systems that haven't usually talked to each other or been coordinated, like irrigation pumping and vehicle charging, all of a sudden to come under the same roof. The second grant essentially uh, enables us to take that and scale it in two phases to what I would call medium and then large scale, working with our our primary partner, Monarch Tractor, um, to deploy a lot more tractors, other vehicles, and charging systems on farms that will respond to dynamic prices. So one of the main things happening on the California energy scene uh, is an attempt to move customers onto dynamic rates where they'll be incentivized to use energy when it's beneficial from the, for the grid and avoid using energy when it's a problem. Uh, and so we will be taking this core technology that we've developed to manage a, a few locations mm-hmm. and scaling that up to hundreds of locations so that we can make a real impact on the grid. So using energy when you know the sun is shining and energy is abundant, solar panels are generating, or perhaps wind later in the evenings is usually when the wind picks up. You know, when renewable energy is abundant, we want people to use it. And when you would have to pull on fossil fuel resources, they want to disincentivize people to, to pull power if they can. Exactly. So the duck curve is a visualization of exactly what you describe. And so those are times that uh, we'd like to shift energy away, uh, energy consumption away from, and if possible, actually export from from vehicle batteries. How much energy do you anticipate some of these farming operations might need to run electric tractors? Well, some of them are are huge. Um, one of the interesting things, kind of coincidentally, is a lot of California farms have about the same amount of um, capacity for tractors if you convert it to electric as they do for irrigation pumping. So, um, you know, they could have 40 uh, or, or let's say 80 pumps and 40 tractors and the total KW ends up to be about the same. Um, but some of them are, you know, farms that can have even five megawatts. If you converted all of their tractors, it would be like five megawatts of load or five megawatts of supply to the grid. And the important number for them is that buying electricity, especially when they optimize the times at which they buy it, compared to purchasing fossil fuel, diesel, um, is about an 80% operational cost savings. Yeah, so let's talk about that. You're converting to electric, you're reducing your need for diesel as a fuel, and so you're saying that they could reduce the operations of that aspect of their farm by, by 80%? Absolutely. So The number to think about globally, because I know this is the Earthlings podcast, (laughs) is about a quarter of a trillion dollars of spend on diesel fuel for tractors around the world every year. And kind of making some estimates about the different energy markets and the spreads between electricity prices and diesel prices, it would cost about $60 billion a year of electricity. That's not quite 80%, but on, on a global basis, that's that's what it comes out to. So huge savings. Mm-hmm. And within that is the opportunity to provide the products and services to make it happen while still providing a lot of savings to the farmers and benefits to the grid. 
So what what would be the overall cost of farming operations uh, operational budget? Like where does uh, diesel fuel fit into that larger picture? It's something like, you know, third after uh, labor and seed or labor, seed and fertilizer mm-hmm. um, is is the tractors and, and vehicles. So it's still a pretty high up there on the expense list. It is a big expense. You know, there's a lot of different ways that farmers could uh, decarbonize in their operations and make them more sustainable because I'm sure people have heard of things like biochar or regenerative agriculture or, you know, feeding cows some seaweed to reduce methane emissions or pesticide use. I'm curious from your perspective, where do you see um, electrification falling into uh, that broader spectrum? In general terms, agriculture is about 11% of carbon emissions. Transportation is 15%, and this overlaps the two of them. Mm -hmm. Because of the savings here, and because there are so many incentives out there for electrification in key markets, uh, this isn't necessarily a trade-off like, oh, well, I can do one or the other, because the the funding source can come from other places. Mm -hmm. I think the other key thing to think about um, is the interaction with that transportation electrification and, and decarbonization. Uh, so once you have charging capabilities on farms, um, the trucks that come to take produce can charge there, which may enable them over these long distances in rural areas to electrify. Um, crew vehicles, those can electrify. The chargers can even be revenue sources for farmers. So remember, these are folks who are strapped because of all the reasons we mentioned, climate, labor, uh, markets, et, et cetera. Uh, and a charger that is placed there to charge their tractor can also, it has downtime. Mm-hmm. And so many of these farms have long stretches that are along public roads. So there's additional revenue there that can help to electrify transportation in rural areas, which is problematic because of long distances. So the final thing that I will say is, you know, it's especially the part that we work on, which is the integration with the electrical grid, is that when when you flatten that duct curve. So as we electrify transportation, we can add more and more solar. If we just add solar and keep doing the same thing, we have a problem because we have all all this excess energy in the middle of the day and we still have a problem at the end. By putting in place solutions that can arbitrage and flatten that curve, we enable the system, not just farming, not just any particular part of it, but we enable the whole system to electrify. So there's a multiplier effect on the decarbonization by figuring out any one sector of it. And you're, what you're saying is these a lot of these farms are already set up. They already have the energy services. It's not like they've got to go spend millions of dollars to get the utility to do all the infrastructure to to provide them with the electrical service. It's already there. And I'll, I'll just add, you know, we're talking a lot about California, places like it. Um, but again, I see here it's the Earthlings podcast. So you look at places on Earth like like India. And there, um, electric vehicles, electric tractors, um, and renewable energy, on-site renewable energy, can leapfrog the grid. So they have poor grids, they have electric grids that don't serve certain communities, farming communities. And in order for them to do things like have electric irrigation pumps, you put in solar without them ever having had a grid connection. Mm -hmm. Well, an electric tractor can be the hub of a microgrid for a farm or a community like that. 
because when you put that there, you have storage along with, let's say, your solar panels, uh, a solar array, and your load, let's say, a small irrigation pump. And so you have a system that can power those things, but also arbitrage the power, give the people electricity at night that they didn't have, cooking that they were doing with things like coal. So there are other systems that are different from what I described with California, where electrification of farm vehicles can be, and especially tractors, um, can have a multiplier effect on decarbonization. I really appreciate everything you're thinking about because um, we all know that you know agriculture is a really low margin business. And I wonder if you, through this electrification, are able to open up additional streams of revenue for them without taking up too much of their, their land for uh, for the actual business of agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. So charging itself doesn't take a lot of land. Now, something that many farmers have done and it you know does have that land use question uh, is deploying on-farm solar, which many farmers still find valuable, even if they need to um, allocate some land. But especially in many regions that are hit with drought, declining water sources like California, uh, unfortunately, many farmers find themselves following significant pieces of land anyway, because they don't have the water uh, to cultivate them. At that point, the additional cost of the land for renewable generation is is next to zero, unfortunately, because they wanted to farm that land. Um, The other thing that we see coming is agrivoltaics, which is the idea of uh, putting solar arrays over crops it has some benefits for some crops where it provides shading. And so uh, there's a lot of work being done to see how those two things integrate. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they can make money with the solar arrays either by less expensively providing their own energy or by selling it back to the grid. Mm-hmm. What is the, what's it like for farmers in terms of their energy bill? Are they charged a different type of rate than perhaps retail customers are for the energy that they use? How does that work? Um, most places have ag rates that take into account the, the ag operations. In some, they get a discount uh, you know, as a matter of national policy, places like um, Mexico or, or India. In others here in California, it's similar to commercial rates, but somewhat geared for, for their operations. Um, but like everybody, it's been getting more expensive, um, because we have all of these issues to deal with. So it's a little bit of a, you know, of a, of a chicken and egg. And so we need to spend some money to address those issues so that we can bring down everybody's power bills. Speaking of money, where do we anticipate farmers might be able to expect to secure the resources they need to electrify their operations, you know, purchasing tractors and all that stuff? So the simple answer is that electrification at this point in history is incentive driven. Um, Of course, we have the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and tremendous amount of investment being made in this area. There is a cost difference between electric vehicles, electric tractors versus um, diesel or gasoline. Uh, But judicious use of incentives can cover that and make it extremely attractive to to purchase them. So at this point, whether it's the manufacturers of the vehicles and equipment or a company like ours, um, we are somewhat, you know, following the 
the streams of, of incentives because that's where it's going to work first uh, for, for farmers before everything reaches, reaches cost parity. Um, mm-hmm. There's very little now that's not being done with incentives. And I think from the money being put into it, uh, we can probably expect that you know, for the next decade or so. Um, in parallel, and I think what will go beyond that is what you see with financing structures like the loan programs office at, at DOE, uh, which is not, yeah, that's, those aren't grants, but they do provide the kind of bridge funding for newer technologies. I'm sure you're, you know, you're very familiar with that. Okay. So then when it comes to some of these, uh, tractors, you know, I, some of us have been stuck behind some very slow moving, very large tractors in our day. And then, but you know, it, I understand that tractor size, uh, depends on the type of farm you run and the type of crop that you're growing. So, uh, with, um, since your operations are, are pretty, uh, firmly in California right now, um, what are the types of tractors that you think are applicable, uh, for electrification on, on farms and what's ideal? Uh, uh, depending on the type of energy service that some of these farms might have. Yeah. So first I'm going to stipulate what it's not applicable for, because the first objection that you hear anywhere from, you know, an online forum of farmers or LinkedIn, or for that matter, the, you know, John Deere CTO at, at uh, CES in Las Vegas as well. You know, we've got a 900 horsepower tractor and it runs for four months straight and you could never charge it and there are no electrical services there and it would be like, you know, 400 Teslas piled on top of each other. So this will never work. And my answer to that is that they're right there. You know, there is a swath of the market for which this is not a fit right now and probably will not be for for quite some time. Mm -hmm. However, um, that is a swath or a segment. And the vast majority of tractors in the world are smaller than that. So in general, if you think of uh, what the manufacturers and what the industry calls high value crops, uh, so things like you know orchards and vegetables, that's where you tend to see the sizes of tractor um, that this is a fit for. If you think of the huge combines harvesting in Iowa or plowing or, or planting seeds, um, that run, you know, through a season, they literally run 24 hours a day. Those are not going to be a fit. Um, I also mentioned, you know, sort of our genesis from irrigation pumping. So places where you have irrigation pumping means you have electric services. So that whole side of the equation has a head start. And so those are the places to, to start with. Um, India is the fastest growing tractor market, growing at 7 to 8% per year. All of the tractors that are small, there are very few of the ones that are described for, you know, the Great Plains here in the U.S. They're all little. They're all electrifiable. Okay, thank you for that. That helps sort of paint a picture. When when it comes to these um, uh, farmers, where where are we on the appetite for them to adopt uh, electrification? Where are we on? We we hear about the early adopters and then the you know that whole adoption curve here in the. Silicon Valley area, where are we on that curve in terms of electrification? What can we expect? We're still early. We are still, we are still, you know, very early. And honestly, um, a company like Grid Tractor would not have started this early if we started out of nothing. Because we spun out of Polaris with an existing database, understanding of customers, relationship, you know, all of this stuff, technology platform, 
we're able to get out ahead of it and, and kind of make our way along. Um, but it's, it's really just getting started. In terms of customers, I, the way I've looked at it is there are a few key questions that have to be answered. So the first question for a farmer is, can this do the same job as my diesel tractor? Mm -hmm. And really, that's the job of the manufacturers to show them. Now, everything that I've seen says that there's some you know, really good advantages. Frankly, um, electric motors are a lot better way to do many things than, than diesel, right? You have great torque. When you're not using it, it doesn't consume electricity. It doesn't idle the way others do. So there's a lot of good stuff, but you know, people and especially farmers are creatures of habit. So that needs to be demonstrated. The next question is, okay, I trust that it can do the work, but what about charging? Yeah, I'll save money and all of this, but diesel is really simple. I mean, yeah, we and we look back on the history that uh, diesel, gasoline, even natural gas uh, has, you know, it, these industries have had 100 years to figure out all the kinks, right? I guarantee you when the Model T was first introduced, uh gas stations were still in their infancy and there was there were I'm sure there were hiccups. I'm sure the pump didn't work sometimes, right? And so over the course of a hundred years we figured that out and everything runs really smoothly because it, you just have that luxury of time and and the electrification space is just it's still in its infancy in terms of working out some of those kinks that are going to be worked out as people gain more experience and we learn from uh, our past. I kind of went on a tangent with the two parts of the pro, you know, the two customer questions. The third is, well, well, I get all these savings. And that's, again, where it's our job to show them. But that is demonstrable that, mm -hmm. again, the economic tailwinds are there. And so if the OEMs can prove that, yeah, the machine does what it needs to and we can solve the charging problems for them with software and hardware and services, then that, you know, that bucket of value is is there. Um and we need to show that, but uh, that's the part, you know, that I'm really confident can do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, so then when, and then, and so what's the appetite that, so we are the early stages um, and there's, there's pilots running. And so it's a very early adopter uh, farming operations are, are looking into this, but if we, if we zoom out a bit and just talk, think generally about the, um, the uh, agricultural professionals that you've encountered, What's what's their perspective on on climate change or adjusting their operations for a warmer planet? What are you hearing? I think of it kind of like a bell curve. Um, and on the left side of the bell curve, and you can use left intentionally, are people who are all in. You know, maybe they're organic farmers. It is part of their mission, right? In the crops that they grow, in the way they farm, everything is, you know, that that's part of what they're trying to do is to deliver food in a more sustainable way for the world. Um, at the far right, again, literally the far right are people who you can show the savings. You can say, you know, forget about whether it's saving carbon just for you. This is great. And there's just an ingrained, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't believe in this. Mm -hmm. The huge chunk in the middle are driven by trying to make a living economic considerations. And, um, on the pull side, they're being asked by customers and by supply chains to grow more sustainably. And everything that they can demonstrate that they do has value for them. They are also being slammed by climate in a very local and immediate way. <laughs> there is not water, it is hot, all, all of these problems. And so 
Um, they are not idealistic about decarbonizing the world, but they are pragmatic about um, sustaining their business uh, and their local colleagues and friends and, and family business. And so if there is a technology that helps them to use a resource more efficiently or saves them money or pays them money, uh, then they will be interested. And to your point about where does this fall in the stack, that's exactly how they'll look at it. They won't look in the carbon stack, they'll look in the dollar stack. And if this is something that is valuable for them, they'll do it. And if it's not, then they they won't. And that's really the middle the middle of the bell curve that, that we see. Mm -hmm. And how might you uh, anticipate uh, people adjust themselves on the, that bell curve uh, as the future progresses? I see that bell curve persisting. Okay. Um, because people can be confronted with a lot of facts and find ways to maintain the same beliefs. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll put an asterisk on my own statement there, which is that we are also seeing generational change in agriculture. So large numbers of, of baby boomers, who are the folks who have run these farms for, for a few decades, obviously by virtue of the name, there were, there were lots of them. And they're getting older, retiring, dying off, and passing on to a generation that is um, more aware of climate. It just, you know, they've grown up with it as more of a fact than a, a, a question. And also, you know, not specifically to do with climate, but they are also by nature and by definition um, more technology savvy, more interested in adopting new technologies. Uh, and so to the extent that those align with climate, may not be climate specific, but to the extent that they help in one way or another, they're, they're going to adopt things and, and not be as wedded to practices from three decades ago. And so, again, it goes back to the, uh, you know, if you, if you can demonstrate the savings, which is is pretty direct to do, it's, it's a very clear uh, equation here um, that... I, I would assume we know that, uh, you know, in the agriculture community, there's a lot of peer to peer selling, you know, if people talk to each other and they kind of wait to see what their colleagues and friends and neighbors are doing before they even have a look at it. So can you, can we anticipate that the, uh, the more this is adopted, the more others will be exposed to it and perhaps consider that adoption themselves as they start talking to each other? Absolutely. That's, the way it works, especially in agriculture. So you need to get those early adopters. You need to give them good experiences with the with the product because by the same token, if you give an early adopter a bad experience, that, that's going to go to the same, same group of people. Mm -hmm. If we look at the electric tractors that exist, they started with wineries and so we're seeing a lot of adoption there for exactly that reason. Um, we'll need to get a foothold in some of the, you know, other larger crops and the same, the same will happen. Uh, one thing I'll say just, you know, on this notion of the pace of adoption, oh, well, ag is really slow to adopt. And there, there is something to that. But here, here's the point that I would make. When you try something in ag and you try something, let's say, in the IT department of, I don't know, any other industry, you need a certain amount of time to try something. Everyone will do a pilot before they do something big. Because, oh, well, ag takes a lot longer. It's not necessarily that they take a lot longer. It's that any given thing that you use in ag, you only use for a part of the year. So your opportunity for a pilot is a few months. 
And then whatever your next stage is comes 12 months later. And on top of that, in, you know, let's just say the other technology was in a bank. You know, if you missed having it ready by three months, so you start your pilot three months later. If you miss that frame and ag, you start it an entire year later. So my guess is that if you were to divide some of these, you know, sort of adoption timelines in ag by four, you find that they're about the same as other sectors. It's not that people don't want technology. It's they're they're going to go through the same steps, but those steps end up taking place over years because you have to make things match the growing seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not easy. So that's it's a slower pace of adoption, but not because the people adopt more slowly. Simply they want to see the same kind of results that any buyer wants to see before they try something, before they fully adopt something new. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I appreciate that analogy or that explanation because I hadn't really thought about that before, but I can see how that that really is the case. You're sort of, you're, you're constrained by the seasonal timeline of nature. You're working at the, at the speed of nature in a way. Yep. So uh, what, what can we expect from your perspective? Like if you look into the future, five, 10 years, what might we expect? Hopefully a lot of electric tractors and, and chargers. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know who coined this, but there's, you know, everyone overestimates what they can do in a year and us underestimates what they can do in five. I, I think it's that type of thing. And again, maybe because of the last point we talked about, it's, it's 10. Um, but I think certainly in this area, the, you know, it will become apparent and that, you know, the bit will flip and people will start to, to adopt this technology. I think we're seeing it with other things like irrigation automation, you know, that, which was sort of my entree to this. And I worked on that for five years and it was exactly that where, Oh, no one's ever going to do that. They, you know, they're going to keep walking out and turning on their pumps manually because they don't trust this technology. And then, you know, five years later, pretty much everybody wants it. They don't all have it yet because it's expensive, but they all want it. So Mm -hmm. I think the things that, you know, back to that point about the middle of the bell curve, the things that provide economic benefit will, will be adopted on a normal timeframe, considering that seasonality that we talked about. So slower than other sectors, just because of what, what did you call it? The, uh, the, the pace of, you had a good phrase, the pace of nature. Earthlings, I, for one, would not mind being caught in my car behind an electric tractor on the road. How cool would that be? I know we've covered a lot on this show, and something we didn't get into was how electric tractors might take off in other parts of the world compared to California and the U.S. because, you know, they're smaller and they can leapfrog over other incumbent solutions. So I think I'm going to explore that a little bit more. So stay tuned for that. And I think what's going to make grid tractors successful over time is their understanding of both what farmers value in their decision making and what technologies energy prices and market signals can be stacked to add up to a solution that makes sense economically and decarbonizes their operations as a bonus. So I'm excited to see what the results are of these two grants David is working on. So keep your sensors pointed at Grid Tractor and stay tuned for some additional explorations on this subject. Our Faith in Humanity is restored this week by Katia Latuf. She's a Mexico City local who turned her apartment into an unlikely sanctuary for sick hummingbirds. 
Twelve years ago, Katya was grappling with the loss of her husband and her own battle with cancer, and during that time she found solace in nursing an injured hummingbird back to health. The bird was affectionately named Gucci, after the designer sunglasses case that became the bird's temporary shelter. Oh my god, so cute. I can just see it now. And, you know, this tiny creature became her source of redemption and opened up a whole new world for her. Today, her home is transformed into an impromptu clinic for ailing, wounded, or baby hummingbirds. Babies are like this big. And after years of this dedication and service, the 73-year-old has become a respected authority for bird enthusiasts throughout Latin America. So important are her efforts that there are plans for establishing a foundation to mentor and train the next generation of hummingbird enthusiasts. So Katya's story reminds us that anyone can make a difference, even a small positive contribution on this beautiful blue-green space flower can change the timeline for all of us. So, Earthlings, what reality do you want to create? Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.